And this isn't something that's going on far away. This isn't something that's happening places we can't do anything about it. It's happening right here, right in our neighborhood, right in that building behind you. Archie Miller ran that grocery store since we were kids here. Dave worked there, Mike worked there. He went under and now some fucking Korean owns it who fired these guys and is making a killing because he hired 40 fucking border jumpers. I see this shit going on and I don't see anybody doing anything about it. And it fucking pisses me off. Hi everyone, welcome to this week's episode of No Happy Endings. The film my guest host Stephen Benedict and I are going to discuss is the 1998 controversial film American History X, starring Edward Norton and Edward Furlong. It co-stars Fruza Balk, Stacey Keach, Elliot Gould, Avery Brooks, Ethan Supley, and Beverly D'Angelo. It's directed by Tony Kay. When producers took the film away from him and handed it to Edward Norton to edit, famously said that he wanted his credit to read Humpty Dumpty. This is a very powerful film. It's very disturbing. 23 years later, having a charismatic racist at the heart of the film, spewing ideology that um, influences those with grievance. Uh, <laughs> the protagonist in this film is somebody who loses a father, who is a fireman, who puts out a fire in a predominantly African-American neighborhood. And f instead of dealing with the grief and anguish of that bereavement, turns to hatred, blames black people in America for basically everything. And um, it's a film where his arguments that he puts forward were something that Steven Spielberg actually singled out as incredibly dangerous and reckless for anyone to put on screen with a character who was charismatic and intelligent and articulate. And I'm of exactly the opposite view. Uh, I, I think allowing for a character that puts forward these arguments that are capable of persuading people of their legitimacy is something we desperately need to contend with with art so that we can be prepared for it when we're confronted with it in real life. And, um, and I think this film stands up really well in, in presenting a lot of arguments and characters that um, these issues have not gone away in 23 years later. They are much, much worse, and I think we're much more fragmented and divided than, than they were at the time of making this film and, and releasing this film. So I, I think it's a really powerful expo exploration of violence and pain and anguish deferred and, um, and race just being all over it. And what the hell is boxing if not an exploration of the finding meaning in violence and a lot of that meaning has been in racial terms over the last 125 years that prize fighting has existed so that's why we're here with this film and it certainly lives up to the title of this podcast and does not have a happy ending and i think it's a pretty kind of a fucking shitty ending actually but there's lots of good stuff in it so i hope you enjoy Stephen benedict and i discussing american history x here on No Happy Endings. Stephen, we have American History X came out in 1998. I saw it when it came out. Um, but the rhetoric of an articulate, angry skinhead um, 
what sounded very fringe back then uh, seemed to have some similarities with the rhetoric of a certain 2016 election. <sighs> yeah, I know. It, you know, and then since we're talking about Clockwork Orange, you are really entering into the realm of science fiction, but it's it's not science fiction. This is very, very real. I mean, the thing that I always refer to is a third movie is um, uh, Roman Polanski's Rosemary's Baby. Mm-hmm. And when Rosemary is drugged and there's a there's the demonic rape of Rosemary and she wakes up and she goes, this isn't a dream. This is really happening. Yeah. And so what you're happening here, as you said, at the MAGA rallies, um, it's, you know, it, it's, it's beyond parody because it's, it's very, very sincere. There's no irony with these people. This is what they really, really fervently believe. And it's simply there's such a shallow sense of reflection that they don't see the implications or they don't care about the implications beyond their own image and what it can do to them. If they, if they secure power, it's only about their power and it's not um, about what other people have, what other people want. So that, that's what I mean by there's no reflection. When they look in the mirror, they only see themselves and nobody else. They don't see the rest of the world. And when they look at someone else's face, they don't see themselves. They look, they, they see somebody, somebody completely different. So that's the thing. When you're looking at American History X and you're looking at Clark or Orange, because they're works of art, there is a certain degree when you look at that movie, you can see either yourself or see culture and see society. But, you know, MAGA, my God, it's just, it's just too fucking real. I... I, I... And I I really want to stress for people that haven't seen these movies who think that what we're saying and making the comparison with Trump's rhetoric, that it's hyperbole. um, I I went through every one of the major speeches that Edward Norton playing Derek Vinyard, who's based on a a real skinhead who went to jail and reformed, as is the Cameron Alexander character, the head of this sort of, I think it's called the DOC, Mm-hmm. Uh, white supremacist chapter is based on Tom Metzger, who's who's played by really interestingly by Stacy Keach. Um, originally, was actually they tried to get Marlon Brando for this role, which would have been fascinating. Mm-hmm. But uh, it really isn't hyperbole. Derek Vinyard's obsession with how white people are disenfranchised in the United States. They Job explicitly sense. say that only. Uh, white Protestants are the only people to not be hated in the country. Everybody else is here to exploit it. Mm. Um, they single out Rodney King, which had happened not long before this movie seems to be taking place. Yeah. And as they discuss that situation, I just could not escape the reverberations of where Trump went after the Central Park Five were yes. being incarcerated and he took in out the New York Times yeah. to have them executed. And when DNA evidence uh, exonerated every one of those those African Americans of that crime, there was no apology. It was just move on to the next thing. He, he, yeah. he no acknowledgement. No acknowledgement. Just gained the capital of taking a hard stance of scapegoating these African-Americans for all of the problems in New York City. Mm. He's the tough one who's trying to root out crime. (laughs) And off we go. And boy, you hear that animating and vitalizing Derek Vinyard long before, like there's no, there there was no attempt to put Trump into this guy. But Trump seems to have taken the Derek Vinyard playbook of recruiting the kind of people that Vineyard recruits, gullible, um, insecure, mm. and as they say in the film, people tired of being picked on. 
tired of being picked on by minorities. Here's a way to find solidarity and yeah. strength. Yeah, the only thing that has changed, I think, in the rhetoric is that they feel left behind. Yes. Right? That, that's the only phrase that they're, I can see is slightly different. Yeah. And that's what I meant there was really about the self, the, the reflection is that, you know, when Trump put took out those ads, and as you said, the DNA proved those five young men were completely innocent of the charges. Um, he, you know, Trump didn't apologize. Trump didn't even acknowledge it. That's what I mean by the lack of reflection is they do not see themselves at fault at all, because when they look at the world, all they see is someone else's fault, right. not their own misgivings or own, own, own shortcomings. So when they look at, you know, the, 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 the Buddhist thing of when I look at you, I see myself because I recognize my humanity in you and you recognize, I recognize your humanity in me. And there's none of that at all. And as you were saying about the sense of jobs, the, the big difference would be that I think in, in History X, it's um, the Koreans are berated. Yeah. But then even as, in modern parlance, they've, they've now just spread that right across Asia, you know. Yeah, um, yeah. True. So the, the thing, though, I find found interesting, though, um, the, you know, the film throws up some good ideas and then some very, very wishy-washy ones, very, very weak ones. But one thing that struck me this time when I was watching it, again, it's this undefeatable white man in prison. Yeah. You know, you see it in Sylvester Stallone pictures, you know. Lock up. Uh, lock up, you, you know, uh, you saw it in Brew Breaker. You see a little bit of it in Cool Hand Luke. And I know that's from a very, very different era, but the entire idea is that the, the guys who are in prison in those sort of movies are innocent victims. They're, they're um, falsely imprisoned. They're never guilty well, of the crime. Well, sorry to interrupt, but, but also Shawshank Redemption, yes. or you have people that are criminals, but show no characteristic of being of criminality. Yeah, yeah. And in this one, um, what I found really, really strange was uh, he um, Derek does not display any of the trauma that you would expect to see from a victim of a gang rape and you know uh, in, in the prison and he comes out and he is there he's blemish free you know he's actually strangely he's been purified by his oh, experience he's grateful. he says he's grateful for the experience to his brother yeah i you know it's the undefeatable white man and then the person you know and also the thing is you, you were mentioning it's based on um thomas Layden. Uh, he's a former former skinhead, racist skinhead. Was I think he's now working for the Salmon Wiesenthal Center, as far as I, I, if I remember correctly. But the thing was that in in Leyden's case, that the, that transformation took years, years. And I know the movie; it's it's only a two-hour movie. But you know, Derek Derek Vineyard's transformation is pretty quick. Well, I think I agree with you. I I, I had a very mixed response to the film. I mean, it's. 23 years old, the the rhetoric that you see with a lot of the extreme MAGA types, mm. <laughs> it's, it's weird to try to... Is there a mild? Create, create a demar demarcation there. Um, but what I did like about the ambiguity of how Vineyard is, is created, because yeah. I, the, the research that I had was that he was based on Frank Meink. Okay, sorry. Right. What's the name? Um, is that... You have a, a, a white family in in Los Angeles who yeah. moves to to the beach. They move to Venice Beach, uh, a neighborhood that becomes very uh, diversified. Yeah. And, and also socioeconomically, it starts to go down the toilet. 
a little yeah. bit. And Derek Vinyard's father is a fireman who gets murdered putting out a fire in a predominantly African-American neighborhood. And this is the genesis, as, as, as far as we're told at the beginning, of Vinyard's descent into scapegoating African-Americans and other minorities for every problem in the United States. Yeah. And he talks a lot about the border crisis in extraordinarily Trumpian ways. Yeah. Um, yeah. They're collecting welfare checks. He is spouting off statistics. Mm. It the movie becomes very much an essay of Tony, Tony Kay sort of presenting Vineyard as you think that all white supremacists are stupid and you know, illiterate or not scraping. But yeah, but we're going to present you somebody who may have terrible ideas, but he is very bright and charismatic and a powerful figure. Um, famously, Ed Norton, a very lean, sort of meek, physical type of person, put on 30 pounds of muscle, um, so much so that that Arnold Schwarzenegger wanted to know what, what kind of steroids he was cycling <laughs> for, for putting on that kind of weight in three months. Um, but I think what you see with an examination of how he be how he turns into a racist. Yeah. I don't think they really capture the hatred of his racism very effectively. He's got the bad ideas, but I did like the nuance because I remember distinctly being in a theater and how uncomfortable people were when Vineyard was explaining and justifying his views by learning from his father, who's murdered as we described, putting out a fire. But you see a flashback to the father at, the, at a dinner table right. with the family, um, listening to Derek talk about having a very intelligent, hyper-educated, I think double PhD teacher at high school, which I never encountered when I was in high school, yeah. Yeah. Um, presenting a book that became part of the curriculum from an African-American writer, Black, Black Son. Right. Is that the title of the book? Um, Native Son, I'm sorry. Okay, I'm sorry. yeah. Um, Native Son. And as Derek is talking about how much he's admiring this teacher and the ideas that he's being offered, the dad says, well, what was wrong with the previous book that was on the curriculum? Why are you substituting black books for yeah. great books? Yeah. And Derek says, well, no, I don't think it's that. And the dad said, well, look, I just be careful about this agenda and just gulping it wholesale because, you know, affirmative action, I think he says, I don't have a problem with black people, but affirmative action is quite dangerous. I have two people on my team defending my life when I put out fires who actually scored lower on the test than a couple of white guys. And um, is America about that? Is America about giving a job to somebody who is not as qualified? That's yeah. not what America is. And it was enough of an argument that I remember the theater just being really uncomfortable with the idea of pushing back on this sort of liberal, idealistic, affirmative action. Mm. And I don't think this movie does, like now looking back on it, a great job of putting forward liberal ideas mm. to create a utopia. They all seem a little flimsy. and They you know, are. Well, the devil gets the best tunes in this one. Yeah. Yes, he does. Um, and And so you see... Ed, Ed Norton just shoot down every idea after he yeah. sort of shaves, shaves the head, tearing into people with just tremendous rants. And 
it, so it's interesting that you have a film that is made by by a very overtly how do how do I put this? Tony K is somebody who is himself a Jewish man, mm-hmm. but it seems like the film is most alive while he's animating the white supremacist espousing hatred. Yeah. It's a strange thing as well. I mean, just to, we were talking about Spielberg recently, and it's strange that um, the most, I wouldn't say the most successful, but the most vivid sequences in Schindler's List are the liquidation of the ghetto. Yeah. This is when Spielberg as a filmmaker really cuts loose and he goes for handheld and it's got very, very spontaneous. He's reacting to what's happening in front of the camera as opposed to these beautifully orchestrated shots that you see in, in Munich or you see in Jaws or Raiders. Sure. And um, that's the fascinating thing. I mean, I think that's what Susan Sontag wrote about in the 1970s, the fascinating fascism, is there is undoubtedly an allure. And I think this is a thing that Tony Kay alludes to in the film is the iconography that he uses and the way he photographs and frames Ed Norton, especially that really, really horrific scene where he murders the two black men yeah. um, by stamping their heads against the, the curb. And he's he's arrested by the police and he's photographed it just there in his boxer shorts. And he's got, as you said, this great physique that even Arnold Schwarzenegger was, was envious of. Yeah. And he's got this massive swastika tattooed on his chest, on his upper chest. And in slow motion, he winks at his brother. Yeah. You know, and there's something, you know, Susan Sontag was talking about, well, that, those are techniques that Lenny Riefenstahl used and not in Triumph of the Will, but in her Olympic movie, Olympiad, the slow motion, the low angle and all that sort of stuff. But I also think that that's what uh, Tony Kay is alluding to there is that the, the nature of cinema and the problematic fact, almost unavoidable fact that it, within its DNA, it is attractive to, it is attracted to violence because it's about motion. Mm. Right. And that's why other movies that go for intellectual or emotional violence are much more problematic to watch because there's nothing attractive about it. OK, the aesthetics of it is really interesting. And I also think that the those scenes were shot in black and white. And I think, you know, I don't know why Tony Kay deliberately uh, made that deliberate decision. But for me, it historicizes the image. It places it in the past and therefore almost not um, legitimizes it, but authenticates it. But it's this idea, this image has been around for a long time by putting it in black and white, I think, as opposed to putting it in color because color immediately modernizes the image. So there's certain things about the way film operates, which is very, very problematic. And so I was saying to the devil gets the best tunes. And it is interesting that the, the arguments that he has are very, very articulate, but it's it seems to me that the film is attracted to them, but in in effect, the movie is really, really liberal because it believes in change and redemption. Okay, and yeah. it highlights the abject deficiencies of Derek's racist ideologies. But I think the ultimate flaw of the film is it doesn't kick back against, in an articulate way, against his ideas. And I think, Bryn, that's really been the the, the weakness of liberalism in the last thirty years. It's almost been, no, I wouldn't say petrified. But it's certainly been been um, immobilized by a, an increasing sophistication of extreme right wing rhetoric. For a long time, we're wondering how do we respond to this, and it's almost like it's like what hit, um, Churchill said: um, "A lie can travel half around the world before the, tr- the truth gets its trousers on." Right. Okay, 
uh, or he think, yeah, I think he said something to that effect. So my point is that the way the right wing uh, rhetoric has become increasingly sophisticated and sort of disguised itself in the last 20 or 30 years, um, the liberal liberalism has been left in the dust because it, it took so long to figure out how to grapple with, with Trump. You know, I mean, I, all I, I, I woke up, when was it, in January? Almost, this was before the, the insurrection on January the 6th. Uh, I woke up and just, I almost said to myself, fucking hell, can you imagine how Trump won? Right? Which means that liberalism would not have been able to, it wasn't able to properly grapple with the rhetoric that he's using. Because if you notice, the, the just comparing it briefly to another movie we may talk about in the future, The Believer with Ryan Gosling. And um, Billy Zane's character in that movie says, you know, we can't talk like that anymore. It's just too obvious. We've got to, effectively, he says, he effectively said, we've got to change the, the rhetoric. And that's right. the failing, I think, of um, that, that debate where Derek has with his dad, where his dad says, don't buy it into it wholesale, this um, affirmative action. He doesn't, somebody at the table could have weighed into why was affirmative action necessary is because the huge sins that have been committed in the past. And so this is a corrective. The pendulum, I can't think of science or gravity working in another way. The pendulum's got a swing in the opposite direction. You know, it's a, it's a corrective. And I think that's the failing of the film is it doesn't give an articulated enough response to what Derek is delivering. No, there's never a powerful character. No, and I, I agree because I think you have this book. Okay, just, just for people that haven't seen it, the plot of this film, it's an interesting choice, is Derek Vineyard has killed two people, two African-Americans who were attempting to rob his house. One of them he shot, shot down. The other he did a curb stomp, which was yeah. the headline for this movie. I was particularly sensitive to the curb stomp because that happened about a mile away from where I went to high school. There was a famous incident of a curb stomping. I had never imagined what a curb stomping was until we heard about some kid where it happened and he was permanently brain damaged. So when this film had the incident, um, it's just such an unbelievably alarming, disturbing manner of uh, violence. And... And the way in which it's inflicted has a kind of righteous indignation that, uh, you know, he even posits, you know, do you, do you people shoot at firemen? So we, we're seeing the source of this is retribution mm. for, for what has been done to his father. And as you say, not the systemic violence yeah. against these, you know, against African-Americans or other minorities. We don't hear any of that. There's no sensitivity to it. But I thought a lot of the, the conversations remind me of that we discussed with Munich, um, where you have some pa Palestinian assassins talking to the Mossad agents. Mm -hmm. And what it really does is pretends as if there's complexity, but adds more humanity that was not true mm -hmm. of the actual assassins, of them being conflicted about the assassinations they were doing. And then Spielberg omits a lot of the collateral damage yeah. of the assassins killing innocent vi victims, mm -hmm. where in the film you see him say specifically, we can't allow victims who are civilians and that kind of thing. Well, there, there were many. Um, here, it reminded me a little bit, you have these, these two murders leading to Vineyard going to prison where a gang rape allows him to discover that racism is wrong. Magically, some kind of fairy tale that, that seemed very much sort of like Atticus Finch 
I don't know why Atticus Finch is enlightened. Out of nowhere. Out of nowhere, somehow he's enlightened about why racism is wrong and all of the kids follow his lead. But nobody has learned why it's wrong. They just understood it from the beginning. It's not Huckleberry Finn who has to spend time on the raft with Tom to see all the ways that the church and his society has said, black people don't miss their family. There's all these things about them that are not like you. And he discovers, no, it's a real human being who does suffer, who is a good friend. And I'm willing to, based on on experience, reject the bullshit that I've been given and go to a hell that he believes in for his friend. As opposed to Atticus Finch being a saint and the children being saints and then all white people who read it identify with them. Well, yeah. And and didn't that maybe give birth to the white savior thing? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think I think just in in relation to uh, to to Kill a Mockingbird, I often thought not. I didn't think this when I first read it because I just read it like so many kids as a, as a, as a kids in school. Um, but as an adult, I just thought, well, you know, Harper Lee could have gotten herself out of that little cul-de-sac by just simply saying he read the Bible closely, and he got it. He understood it properly, as opposed to just interpreted in a perverse supremacist way. And I think that could have explained that it it came to him from before it's not like as he said he just ex nihilo came out of nothing yeah yeah well and i always wondered like when i read that book is is i thought i have no idea where harper lee stands on racism at all she could be a complete bigot what i know this does is allows all all of these white people to have an unearned enlightenment yeah and to assume were i in that historical time i would have acted just like atticus finch i would have followed his army when most likely he would have been, anybody reading it would have been part of the mob going after an innocent black man. But Brent, wasn't there published recently an earlier draft of To Kill a Mockingbird? They did a sequel of it. They did a sequel of it where Atticus is kind of racist and and stuff like that. Horrible book. She was senile at that point when it was published. Ah, Okay. All right, right. Sorry, Um, I misunderstood. Yeah. No, no, no. So I I think with this, you have the guy who clears up that racism in a very snug, like wrap a bow around um, why racism is wrong and I'm now enlightened. Yeah. And then a little brother where he's positioned in the story to becoming like his, yeah, becoming just like his idol, his brother. And so it's the four years leading up to the murder that are all told in black and white. And yes. then the release of Derek Vineyard where we're 24 hours in a day in the life of him and the murder of his little brother. I thought the casting of Edward Furlong, who is half Mexican is particularly kind of weird. I never um, knew that. Given these are white supremacists. Yeah. I'm like, okay, uh, not a big deal, but Edward Norton comes from like an extraordinarily distinguished political family in Ohio and you know yale educated very bright and then puts on this muscle he is a force to be reckoned with that was extraordinarily unusual made a lot of people especially liberals very uncomfortable to make somebody this bright and articulate espousing these views but the idea that edward furlong who looks if anything like younger and more kind of feminine than he did in terminator 2 (laughs) some years before that this is the same force coming through like version 2.0 of derek vineyard is a preposterous argument the film tries to make 
Yeah. Also, the, here's the thing that I find is you're talking about making liberals very, very uncomfortable watching the movie. Um, I'm just thinking it may have echoes of the way liberals viewed films like Taxi Driver and Goodfellas mm. and even Pulp Fiction. Um, conservative critics loved Pulp Fiction especially mm. here on this side of the Atlantic. They really, really loved it. And the liberal, you know, I mean, uh, film critic in The Telegraph and The Daily Mail in the UK loved the film. And then The Guardian were a little bit circumspect because they, they hate, they, not that they hate it, but they didn't like the, the, the historical vacuum of the film. There's just no uh, con contextualization at all. It's just pop culture now. Um, and I'm just thinking about, you know, how Taxi Driver was condemned because they didn't unequivocally come out and e explain and contextualize Travis. It place, places him in this very, very strange twilight for audiences to figure out. And then we were talking about, Scors we've spoken repeatedly about Scorsese's pictures, the gangster pictures. You know, um, his, picture, his gangster pictures are problematic because he doesn't give you a very, very clear way forward and um, framing device for us to say, bad man, not the traditional right. sense. Right. It's seductive. And maybe that's what Tony Kay was trying to go for, or the filmmakers were trying to sort of acknowledge at least, is that when you're doing a gangster picture, you can condemn the gangster. Um, but the problem is, how do you make the gangster repellent from the beginning? Well, you can't, because the audience won't wait around. And Derek had to be made in some way, shape or form sympathetic. And in Scorsese picture, uh, the characters aren't sympathetic, but they're alluring, they're attractive. And what they do is exciting. We want to be part of it. And I think maybe that was the thing. It's a, it's sort of operating by a similar uh, set of technique, but not a value. Mm. Because there, we know that the, the entire idea of racism is far more problematic than criminality. Right. You know, it just it's, it's historical. It runs really, really deep. And it cuts right across um, cultures and right across continents. And so by presenting Derek in the same way that Henry Hill is presented in, in Goodfellas, maybe why is it, my, my question is, why do we go that Scorsese does it correctly, figures out how to do it, and then Tony Kaye's American History X fails? And I think it's because the ending is too neat. As you said, it's tied up with a bow. Scorsese's characters never learn anything. They're the same ignorant, dumb fuckers at the end of the movie than they were at the beginning. And I'm including Jordan, Jordan Belfort, the guy who made millions, right down to, to Jake LaMotta. The only thing about a Scorsese character is they, they get found out. They're caught, right? right? There's no redemption. There's no um, road to Damascus moment. They never see the light. They just go, I missed the old life. I'll get to live the rest of my life like an average schnook. And I would have loved if, if um, Derek's character arrived on that moment and not had to go through the, trage the, the tragedy of the murder at the end. You know, it's, it's not the sins of the father, it's the sins of the brother now. Yeah, and, and I mean, similarly, goes to jail. The white supremacists are all hypocrites. They don't believe in anything. He believes. So he's offended by their hypocrisy. And then lo and behold, he has the saintly African-American inmate where they're both doing laundry. And that guy with no faults or flaws or real dimension, he is just there as an angel. Yes. I mean, there's, he, he bears, well, good for him. He doesn't bear resentment, but there's, there's no sense of it. I mean, for a person in prison 
surely there's some sort of some sort of latent residue of anger there. Uh, however justified or unjustified their time in prison may be. And for him to confront a, a blatant racist, surely there'd be like, I mean, is he so saintly, as you said? I mean, surely that's what it was a Spike Lee who came up with the phrase, the magic Negro. Yeah, I think I, that's yeah, American that's history X right there. You know, that's, and excuse excuse the brutality here. He has the he has the racism raped out of him. Yeah, it's true. It's absolutely true. You know, there's and no I, other explanation. Bryn, can I go even further? It's not an intellectual exercise. It's the other end. The the enlightenment comes through his ass, not his head. Oh Jesus! Sorry, sorry. But it's true. It's you know? it's it's a bizarre kind of i mean it's not a do ex machina but it's it's yeah. yeah i mean raped into enlightenment is yeah. whoa and, yeah. and then I, I, I sorry I, I think that's part of the part of the problem with movies like this and clockwork orange we talk about soon is that there is that the shock value is that the, the the scene is so shocking your intellectual reservoir is depleted yeah. And you are now in a complete desert and you don't know what's my reference point. There's no tree. There's no dune. There's no hill. It's just flatland. You go, how can I process this? And Kubrick succeeded. Kubrick's movie was so shocking that it took people a long time to figure out what he was actually doing. It's like yeah. uh, Burgess's novel. And I think that's the, the reason why American History X got away with a lot. And when we look back, we go, oh, wow, really? Yeah, and I think also t Tony Kay, you know, post this film did Lake of Fire about abortion where he showed an actual abortion. It's all in black and white again. Um, he is definitely somebody both with his art and, and also his personage likes to shock, is extraordinarily yes. dramatic, sued, sued the makers of this film for $200 million, took out massive ads, I think in Variety magazine to go after it wanted his name to be Humpty Dumpty. There, there are some elements of, of those kind of antics that are in this film in ways that I think really detract from it. Yeah. Um, you, you have this family after the murder of the patriarch, the fireman, yeah. um, suddenly they descend into poverty. They're living in what looks like a one-bedroom apartment. Uh, the mother is chain smoking mm -hmm. she coughs into a kleenex and there's blood so it's insinuated that she's dying of lung cancer there's also a baby in the household so they're disenfranchised derek's answer to all of that is that this is not in any way a result of themselves or, or any choices they've made it's all about racism it's mm -hmm. all about the fall they're emblematic of the fall of america um the essay that the brother writes after an essay uh, talking about Hitler as a, advocating as Hitler as a civil rights leader, um, yeah. and Mein Kampf as, is yeah. his book report, gets commissioned by his African-American teacher to write a paper about the implications of his brother's arrest and imprisonment and release. Mm. And so it's funny when Ed, Edward Furlong starts talking about Venice Beach, that this used to be a great neighborhood, basically, yeah while it was predominantly white yeah. and then everybody else who came in just destroyed it. But I, I agree that there are a lot of elements of this story. Um, everything that's in color is about the 24 hour period that we're covering. Everything else is black and white about the four years leading up to it. Um, is that 
if you had a different director dealing with this material, Oliver, you know, there's one critic who said if you had Oliver Stone or Scorsese or Spike Lee, yeah, this thing could really take off and fly, was their quote. And I think Spike Lee, for, for me, and I, I really dislike most of his films, but Do the Right Thing, I think, is a, a uh, work of genius. Yeah, it's a Genius, just brilliant. And there is such a wonderful balance of all the characters involved mm-hmm. that you're left with kind of liking everybody and hating what happens between them. Yeah. I know. Which is really powerful to do yeah. that. Here you kind of hate everybody. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I, look, I think it's as simple as this. I mean, you know, technically, this is the thing about uh, cinema. It's, it's, it's such a technologically grounded art form. Yeah. Perhaps more than any other. I think maybe architecture would be the one that's more technologically reliant than than film. Um, and so you can you can have fantastic technique, but you know you can your ideology can be very very problematic, challenging, or you know just completely skewed. And technically, Tony K is brilliant. I mean, the guy's background was advertising. Uh, he he directed one of the most legendary uh, uh, commercials in the history of British advertising, one for British Rail, uh, where he effectively just put a camera on the front of the train in Edinburgh and filmed it all the way down to London. And I think he shot 125, I don't know how many millions of feet of film and just cut it down to a 40 second commercial. And it's a great commercial. And then uh, he took out an ad in the London Times saying, is Tony Kay the, the greatest British director since Alfred Hitchcock? So he doesn't have a problem with ego here. No, um, but absolutely right. You ha- you have a filmmaker who's brilliantly um, adept with the technique, but not really too sure with what the technique implies or how what what the effect is. And Spike Lee and Martin Scorsese and Oliver Stone clearly do. They really understand. They've definitely not only have been to film school to study technique, but been to film school to to, stu- to really understand the effects, the sociological effects. You know, and I think. You know, I'm going to be cheap here. Maybe because Tony Kay has got a background in advertising, he doesn't really see the sociological impact. He just sees the commercial one. I mean, I know that's a cheap shot. No, but... No, no, no. But, but, but I think you're also right in that this film, one of the things that it really suffers for is the sketches and powerful scenes are enormously effective. When they rob the Korean grocery store, when Derek Vignard is talking about to these white supremacists before they rob, the justification for robbing this store, not really robbing it, but destroying it, mm-hmm. I should say, because I don't think they rob it other than stealing like a sculpture of a hamburger or something, um, is he, he talks about the border being a joke. And he says, is anyone really surprised that they're laughing at us on the other side of the border? Again, very Trump language. Trump's sure. always talking about being embarrassed. People yeah. be, should be ashamed. They're Esteem. laughing at us. Esteem, yeah. Esteem um, describes this as this is not your neighborhood. This is a battlefield. Yeah. That's what we're looking at. Um, and talks about parasites. Any, anybody who's there who's yeah. basically not white is a parasite on the system. So you really have a charismatic lunatic. But this is a movie that has great sketches and powerful scenes that are filmed in an incredibly vital way that's disturbing and frightening, but it is always in search of an organized principle that the moment you get what that is, it's, it's really lame. It's like a first idea kind of thing. Yeah. It's when you pull back the curtain and you go, really, that's the wizard of Oz. That's, that's every time, every time there's the the underpinnings. 
Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd add two directors uh, to, to that, that list of Scorsese, Oliver Stone and Spike Lee. And we'll go back to the 60s, Giulio Pontecorvo, who did the Battle of Algiers. That would be the guy you'd really, really want to be tackling this sort of issue now. Uh, Paul Greengrass, I think, is very good. I mean, if you take, you know, this is Paul Greengrass before he did um, the Bourne Identity Pictures, because he did Bloody Sunday, and he did some fantastic documentary work, crucial documentary work, especially into the murder of Stephen Lawrence, the young black man who was murdered at a bus stop in London, whose, crime, whose, whose murder has yet to fully be resolved. It's just an, a, a yet another really, really shameful, disgraceful episode in um, British, British policing. Um, but maybe even Catherine Bigelow would be a director to to tackle this because you know they understand the implications of what they're doing in the way that Tony Kay doesn't. The character here's here's what I'm trying to say, Brian. Yeah. Finally, properly, is that the film is nowhere as as articulate as Derek is. True. Great point. Great you point. Uh, you know, and and the other thing. It, Interestingly, Ed Norton turned down the starring role in Saving Private Ryan to play this. Right. And the other person before he accepted the job was Joaquin Phoenix, who turned the role down, saying the material was too disturbing. Mm. And before Tony Kay came on as director, Dennis Hopper turned down directing this film. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Here, here's the thing to bear in mind. I mean, when we say that, you know, um, uh, Joaquin Phoenix turned it down. He may not necessarily have been turning down the script. He may have been turning down the director as well, because as we know, you know, you, it's not the script. You, you go in for a chat and you say, what, what you know, how are we going to do this? And what's the meaning of that scene? And you're, you're checking them out. Um, and maybe they were, they were turning down uh, Tony Kay as well. Dennis Hopper, I can understand why, because maybe it's because of colors, you know, uh, th that gang picture. Um, but, you know, I think Dennis wasn't that great a director. I saw he, the last picture show. Good. Holy God. Oh, the last the last movie. The last movie. Cool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, he, he struck. Asshole. He, he somehow found the Klondike Pass or whatever in 1969. <laughs> he looked into it and, you know, um, yeah, I, I don't know. Joaquin Phoenix may have been good. Because Joaquin Phoenix has has a very very dark twinkle in his eye, yeah. which is a, a lot more quickly disturbing than Ed Norton. Ed Norton has uh, a beauty about him, um, which is initially charming, and the the darkness comes a lot later. You know, and maybe I think in a way, um, uh, um, sorry, I think in a way. Bryn, Ed Norton got to make a history, American History X properly with Fight Club. Oh, that's interesting. But the thing, though, is that Fight Club has no uh, reference at all to, to bigotry or racism. No. You know, there's not even a scent of homophobia in there, which you'd expect with, with these sort of uh, street gangs. But I think that's maybe what makes Fight Club a little bit more sophisticated and, and um, more modern, because it, it, it releases itself from the cliches and shackles of racism and homophobia within gang culture and it also elevates it it's not elevates it but also positions it positions it within white collar corporate america which i find which was much more um which is breaking new ground because otherwise you're seeing to seeing the same things over and over and over again right you right know? that's interesting and i also think uh it's 
a little distracting revisiting. Like I, I just watched good rewatched Goodfellas not long ago. Yeah. Um, how much Ed Norton is channeling De Niro in this film to sort of get at that dark energy, like the glint in his eye is very similar to De Niro in Goodfellas as Jimmy in taxi driver as Bickle. Um, there's something about Ed Norton where it, it just becomes impersonation rather yeah. than invention. Right. And, and the other thing is like De Niro, the moment that Norton tries to get into crying vulnerability or, or bereavement, it is unintentionally funny. It's just really, really bad. It looks like somebody at 10 years old in a, in a drama class <laughs> trying to, to do crying. I, like there's just nothing to it. And I don't know why some actors do it and it's very powerful and there's others where it's awful. But Norton is in that same camp of great actors who the moment you tell them to cry, it is painful to watch. Yeah, they do it. They do a trick with their voice. I'm just thinking, you know, the way we've we've when we haven't done this in a while, but we were thinking about it. if you were to remake the movie today, who would you cast? Yeah. And um, I'm going to go completely nuts on this casting. I'm going to put Jennifer Lawrence in the role of Ed Norton, completely change the gender. Ooh. Because you re you you release yourself immediately from to toxic masculinity, and in all of a sudden you're into a different sphere, a different expression of violence, a different understanding of perception of violence. I mean, can you imagine Jennifer Lawrence doing a, a curb stomp? No, it's a very it? it's a very interesting. I mean, they they have Norton's girlfriend Feruza Balk, who I just yeah. can't stand as an actor. Mm. Um, her best friend growing up actually was my babysitter, which is kind of weird. <laughs> uh, she was in a, a Wizard of Oz remake called Return to Oz. And so oh, you know, wow. that's how she first came on my radar. Yeah. Um, but she is just frothing, vitriolic, yeah, racist, just spewing profanities. And, and that's like, and that, unfortunately, sorry to cut, you, cut across you, that's unfortunately what women are reduced to in, the, in movies, these sort of movies over and over and over yeah. again. They're props. They're just props. Yeah, you're yeah. right. No, it's terrible. There's nothing that she could do as an actress with that role, but it's just uh, relishing Norton destroying his family through racism, and she's saying, I'm proud of you and stuff. And I remember even in the movie, like the theater when I saw it, people were laughing. Yeah. She said, she's, I'm really proud of what you did today, <laughs> and people started laughing. Yeah. Um, so, no, I think that that's a very interesting element. I mean – it just reminds me of the phenomena of like the Karen, you know, where, where everybody is blessed yes. by the self-righteous entitled, almost yeah. always white woman, but not exclusively white yeah, woman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, barking threats at people, or I'm going to call the manager, or how dare you question my authority when police are arresting them for something. They're yeah. parked in a handicapped zone. Here's the reason why you're an asshole to call me out <laughs> on it. Um Something in that vein, I mean, I, I think it's parallel a little bit to that kind of attitude, the entitled, yeah. privileged white woman mm. who is not challenged. That's would right. Be interesting if you went to the nth degree extreme version of it. Sorry. No. The nth um, degree extreme version. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it, that, that's, a, that's a really interesting idea. I don't know that I've ever seen... Uh, you know, so, uh, you're reminding me. It's a, me of, it's it's a, a But you're reminding me of something where 
when people talk about school shootings, yeah, uh, I think Caitlin Flanagan, the journalist, said we're talking about boys. It's not. It doesn't yeah. break down on both genders. It's always yeah. boys. Yeah. Um, which is which is intriguing. Um, but yeah, youth violence from girls because there are there have been some savage, savage high school a kind of mean girls phenomenon of uh, murder and violence inflicted against girls. Um, that would be an intriguing path to go down. Yeah. Well, this was great fun. Okay. Right, good. Thanks, Brandon. Talk to you soon. Take care. Bye bye. See you soon. Bye bye. Thanks for listening to No Happy Endings. Our show is produced and edited by George Alarcon Swaby and myself, Bryn Jonathan Butler. <laughs>